Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome back. We're back. Hi, Christina. <laughs> how you doing? I'm good, Bobby. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited about today's episode. I know you are. This is this is one of your ultimates. It is, but we'll get to that in a bit. I think I need to ask you first because you've been asking me first no. many weeks in a row at this point. <laughs> Christina, what have you been listening to? Um, well, I've been listening to, I'm going to say it's more of a show. I'm sure we've all been watching Schmigadoon. I have not, but continue. Oh, Bobby. I know. Okay. I've been watching Schmigadoon. Not going to lie. I was a little concerned that I, that it was just not going to hit all the right notes for me. I could okay. use a pun, but it has so far. It's been really silly. Um, I love the way that they are throwing spins and parroting things. And ironically, it reminds me a lot of what Sartre used to do. Okay. And All right. that warmed my heart. Uh, for the, our listeners who don't know, um, Michael Sartre used to run the American Musical and Dramatic Academy's musical theater department. He just, he loved to parody a song. This show definitely does what Michael loved to do, which was to kind of poke fun at musical theater, even though it was his love and passion. Um, and so I've I've really been enjoying it. It's also really great to see Ariana DeBose shine. Um, she famously is known for playing death in quotes in Hamilton. Right. You know, and um, she also did Summer, the musical, but Seeing her really like get to utilize all that she is as a performer in this show is so much fun. And she gets to use that soprano sound, that beautiful mezzo soprano sound that she has and tap dance her face off. I mean, it's great. It's so much fun to watch. And I'm sure other listeners have been watching it unlike Bobby. I mean... I think everyone is like on bated breath for this West Side Story remake to come out uh, at Christmas that time too. where yeah. she's playing Anita. And I think the world will finally see the masterpiece come together and see what so many of us have already seen within her. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I mean, that could be an Oscar like worthy performance. Totally. Because of who she is and the role itself yeah. um, and the history with the role. So I'm excited about that. Schmigadoon. Uh, you had to bring up Michael Sarter, didn't you? I um, did. I'm sorry. Because uh, oh, now it makes me want to watch it. I mean, I in the early days, I couldn't, I couldn't get behind it. And I was also like, I hate these streaming shows that are now coming out every week. I'm like, what happened to the binging thing? Like, I really <laughs> liked the binging thing. And I was like, I'm, I'm waiting until this is done. And now that it's done, I probably need to just do it. So thank you, Christina. For, You're welcome. Because your yes. next week is ruined. You're welcome. <laughs> Awesome. Schmigadoon. Bobby, what have you been listening to? 
Hi, I feel like in act two, I'm taking this like note to stay on theme for episodes. And that could be a really awesome thing or a really bad thing. But this week I have chosen to listen to a show that is by the same songwriting team as the musical we're discussing today. Mm. And that was a favorite of mine. Also, hashtag Michael Sarter, rest in peace. One of his favorites, Closer Than Ever. Oh, I love Closer Than Ever. I... So obviously, Closer Than Ever, Maltby and Shire, the songwriting team, are known for a lot of things, but they're two reviews, starting here, starting now, and Closer Than Ever, yeah. because they, in those shows, craft such incredibly rich actor get in there yeah. songs and yep. that's why people love them and that's why the heartbreaking thing of them not having a ton of success on broadway is present because it's like they've written these songs but in musical theater school it's right for the picking for like oh, teaching yeah. people how to perform Crossword a song puzzle holy oh cow. my gosh oh my gosh and so it was present in my college years. And then when I started working at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy in Hollywood, um, one of the first showcases that I worked on as a staff member, uh, was it the opening number or the closing number? I forget. They did um, Next Time I Wouldn't Go Back. And it oh. was staged by Tony nominee, Jane Lanier. Oh, and it Jane. was the most thrilling like people were just throwing their hands in the air and just basically like walking in tune to the music because she was dealing with a lot of people who weren't dancers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, it was so effective. It was one of those things that I was like, what is this song? What am I listening to? What is this staging? And it was just people just like sassily walking in patterns on stage, kind of just throwing their arms up and just lighting. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm obsessed. And then I went back and listened to the entire cast album. And I was like, oh, this is uh, this is great. So I, I got to relive that this week because I chose to. And yeah, I wish it was done more often. I feel like people perform songs from Closer Than Ever yeah. all the time. But I don't know if I feel like I see big theaters doing it. And that's such a shame. I noticed that a lot of big, especially regional theaters, um, anything that's not a black box doesn't really touch the musical reviews, which I find surprising. Right. Because in a weird way, it's an easy way to pull in an audience of a certain age. 100%. You know? um, and get to cast in a way that could be diverse without having to worry about paying attention to a storyline. Yeah. I just, if you have a community of actors and you have your like four or five that you really want to showcase, it's like, why not dust off closer than ever or songs for a new world? I know that's one you've talked about in the past. Yeah. There's such rich character driven pieces that you can a really great director and a design team can put their own paintbrush on it. Oh, and yeah. so can the actors like it doesn't matter. You can be big, you can be small, you can be whatever ethnicity or gender or non gender, you know, to do these shows. Um, yeah, I just I wish I saw them done more often, even though I know our love, com our community loves them so much. And yeah, I fell in love with the show again this week. So closer than ever. I love that. Way to stay on brand. I know. I know. Okay, should we get into it? Should we start with the clues? Bobby, why don't you go first this week? Okay, so the first clue, which we gave you at the end of the last episode was this. This show managed to lose $12 million of a $10 million <laughs> investment. They lost more than it cost to produce. <laughs> 
And the second clue was from Twitter, and it was a quote from Variety. The show has about as much edge as the Brady Bunch. <laughs> which was followed by our Instagram clue, uh, which was a picture of baby corn. <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps getting weirder. I know. Uh, and then clue number four was Bobby's fabulous blog post about five musical flops choreographed by Susan Stroman. I mean, she did a couple. And that She's leads us to our last clue, which we're giving you now, which is this. Nearly 60 songs were written for this musical during the creative process. All right, Christina, should we tell them what it is? Drum roll, please. Brr. Brr. The musical. I love this show. I love this show too. I am going on record right now saying I'm still confused how it flopped the first time around. That being said, if you haven't seen the film, let's talk about the plot of the show because it's more or less the same. <laughs> yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Josh Baskin is sick of being an awkward kid. Well, a kid in general. At a carnival, he makes a wish to Zoltar, the fortune-telling machine, to become big, in quotes. To his shock, his wish is granted. Classic 1980s America. After an understandably awkward beginning, Josh is forced to do adult things like getting a job, which he excels at, and a girlfriend, which he does not. He discovers that there's much more to being big than he bargained for and learns that we must all grow up at our own pace and in our own time. Ta-da! The musical! The musical. Okay, so, I mean, we're both people of a certain age, and I yes. feel like this movie was probably as much of a part of your childhood as it was mine. Heck yeah. I watched yeah. it a lot. Like, it was, I remember mimicking tom hanks in the movie like specifically <laughs> with the baby corn at the yeah. party like i used to go to family events and grab the baby corn and try <laughs> to eat it like regular corn which is crazy because the movie came out in 1988 so i was three at the time so obviously yeah. i saw that it. was the year i was born so i obviously saw it in the 90s but i'm sure you did about the same big like rental at the video store and yes. it was on tv and um, it was always checked out at the rental store because it's popular. It was. And and it really is like was that transitional moment, this and Splash, of Tom Hanks yeah. being a television actor, which people forget that was a thing, Bosom yeah. Buddies. To Bosom Buddies is one of my favorites. Keep going. Yes. No, but he made this transition with these two films into being a Hollywood leading man. And it only went on from there. Right. And yeah, these are I mean, my earliest memories of Tom Hanks are this movie and Turner and Hooch. Oh, that was a good one, too. Oh, my gosh. Was so good. Like and this is before like transformational Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks. He's this still is before kind of, the volleyball. Yes, this is. Oh, gosh. <laughs> this is like he's still he's still a sitcom actor and he's very charming. Oh, completely. And I think that's why the movie works, because there's really not a lot there in the no, film. I mean, and also his relationship with the young actor who plays his best friend who stays a kid. Just to yes. be clear, the two of them had a great relationship on screen, which really made a lot of it work i think right um but like you said tom tom hanks just has that star quality 
that you can't teach. You either have or you don't. And he's got it. And that's why that's why this movie is so brilliant. So back to the Broadway show. Should we talk about Genesis? Should we talk about how it got started? Yeah, because it happened pretty early on. The movie came out in 1988. And as soon as 1989, they had really kind of conceived the idea, the team or part of the team to conceive this, Um, you know, uh, the the legend and lore is this Didi Khan, who everyone knows as Frenchie from the movie version of Greece, um, and also Raggedy Ann from Raggedy Ann's musical adventure, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> she is married to David Shire, famous Hollywood film score composer and Broadway composer. And um, he, they were in, I think, somewhere in California uh, on business. She was in the hotel room and she rented big on pay-per-view yeah because he was not there and she was like oh i love this movie wait you should turn this into a musical and she really became the fire to make this happen for the first couple years like she pulled a lot right i mean she she called a lot of her contacts from greece and got the ball rolling absolutely and so yeah she she kind of lit the fire but david shire you know took it and ran with it and started this multi-year process to get the rest of the team on board because not everyone was as convinced as he was that this would make a good musical i think that the book writer john weidman who um famously has written assassins and um he wrote for sesame street Mm -hmm. which i think is just the funniest like opposing I mean, things to have on a resume. I mean, to be fair, he also wrote Pacific Overtures. So, like, also, like, I polar mean, opposite again. But, like, pause the big process to write Assassins, like, which is. Oh, that I did not the know. Craziest thing. Fun facts. Fun facts. Because Assassins was in 1991. So, like, right. just hang on. I'm working with Sontai. <laughs> Excuse me a second. Excuse me a second. Uh, but he was the next to come on board, correct? Yeah, I think they, I mean, it was one of those things. Everything I've read is he was hesitant, but he did it. I think even Maltby <laughs> was hesitant, but he did it. Like, and even when we get to the director and choreographer, which I think might be the next ones you wanted to bring up. Yeah. They even were like hesitant, but they did it until they all officially decided to do it. But they had written a musical and like, done reading of this musical before they officially were like, okay, fine, we're doing it, you know? Yeah, and it was my understanding that they actually got Susan Stroman next okay, um, for choreography, and then finally they convinced Mike Okrent to come in and direct the reading is my understanding, and he was like, okay, I'll direct the reading, but I'm not committing to the show. Right. I'm not doing that. Right. You know, Um, and so... <laughs> Then they did the reading and they realized how funny some of it was and right. that some of it really, really worked. And that was really what convinced Mike to jump in. And then funnily enough, him and Susan Stroman got married in the middle of all of this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, I think what one of the things that fascinated him, I read, was he'd never seen the movie before when they approached him. So that colored his like hesitance. Mm-hmm. He'd seen the movie and he's like, oh, but this is all just Tom Hanks making faces. That's not a musical. <laughs> um, but sure. then I think he was excited about the challenge of turning what was charming about his acting quirks mm-hmm. into scenes and songs in a musical. And right. um, 
you know, up until that point, all he had done was really like revivals and crazy for you, you know, um, yeah. hadn't really done a contemporary show and big presented this opportunity to do a contemporary Broadway musical. Totally. Which and was attractive. It, yeah, I'm sure it was. And, you know, everything I've read on this and I went and watched some of the original Broadway cast videos was everyone talked about Susan Stroman's choreography in it. Now, Susan had already done a bunch of other stuff at this point. So she she was no name in the industry. Oh, 100%. But, like, it was interesting seeing the point of view of some of the reviewers of her choreography and then listening to her specifically talk about her choreography. Like, one of the things that the reviewers all kept saying, they're like, she took hip-hop and made it storytelling. And I was like, none of this is hip-hop. What are they talking about? This feels very strange. And then I finally found a video of her talking about what she wanted to do with the choreography and what her point of view was. And she was like, I'm actually didn't want to just like put hip hop moves on stage. I didn't do that at all. Instead, I went to the kids and we did a lot of improv in rehearsals right. to find what made sense for them, what they liked doing, how they liked to dance. And then we put that into set choreography. And I was like, Okay, see, that makes far more sense than this whole BS about, like, hip-hop turned storytelling. I'm like, that's not what happened. <laughs> I mean, but to to be fair, it's one of the first times we see Broadway on Broadway that go in that direction of the popping and the locking in a conventional Broadway musical. You know what I mean? Sure. There, there I, is sure some of that there. How because, do you label that when you don't right. understand it? Right. You know, which I do get. And that I had to kind of like take that into consideration when I was reading some of these reviews. But it, it was interesting because they all said the same thing, how much um, the choreography actually moved the storytelling forward, which you don't see in reviews all the time. No. You, you know, they may say, oh, the amazing dancing. But they don't talk about the storytelling of the choreography. Um, and that was one of the things that they focused on in the positive, which was cool to see, even in the out of town tryouts, which they, <laughs> so let, we'll get to the, the, the out of town in two seconds. Um, yes, there were ballets in the show, which we will, there were full on ballets, which we'll, mm -hmm. we'll get to. So the tryouts, they've done several readings. People are hemming and hawing like, well, I'll do it, but like, I'm not doing it. I'm not officially doing it, <laughs> but then it comes around and they're like, well, I I guess we're doing it. And the plan was uh, to open it out of town in Boston, which makes sense, mm -hmm. in fall of 1995, and then eventually transfer to Broadway with plenty of time to build up an audience and fix the show prior to the Tony Awards. And right. that is not what happened. Now, I want to pause and say this is one of, if not the first time in the modern world, that we see a big budget popular movie transition to being a musical on stage. We see that all the time now. In fact, one of our most recent episodes was about that, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, we take it for granted. But in 1996, that wasn't. That wasn't what was happening on Broadway. And there were a lot of people in the industry who didn't care how well it was written or how effective it was, who just didn't want anything to do with it because it was based on a big budget Hollywood film, you right. know, and there was a lot of pressure for the team to make that work, which meant, yeah, if you're the first one out the gate, you got to be the best. And there were a lot of technical elements that maybe they shouldn't have done like an actual roller coaster 
in the yeah. carnival scene that lasts two minutes on stage. Okay. Like, yeah. Was that necessary? Did it properly set the scene? I mean, Probably didn't need it. And a bounce house. A full-on bounce house. So, I, I, so there were technical issues and big cost. You know, we mentioned one of our clues. This show lost $12 million of its $10 million investment, which I still don't even understand. Nope, not quite. Um, they weren't able to open in Boston in the fall. And they were pushed back. And the only theater they could find was in Detroit, which <laughs> this is the mid-1990s. And you are doing a family-friendly musical what U.S. city do you not want to try your musical out in? Detroit. To, or Baltimore, but probably Detroit. Like, not safe in the mid-1990s. And they had a giant children's cast. Yes, huge. They had, like, 15 kids, and that's not including the two, like, the uh, best friend and then young Josh. Oh yeah, Billy and Josh, and but they still had a huge kids ensemble for yeah. this. I mean, it was like they they looked at Annie and they're like, "Oh, you have six orphans? Well, we have twenty. Here you go." <laughs> like, um, so they do it in Detroit, which is problematic, and it means that I think they did it early January of nineteen ninety six, meaning if they were still going to open up in that season, they had to finish Detroit fix what needed to be fixed and to open before the Tony deadline at the beginning of May, because if they opened after that, they'd have to wait an entire year for Tony nominations, which yep. can be death for a Broadway musical. And so in Detroit, they see for the first time a lot of this. Um, they see a lot of this material that may have worked well in a rehearsal studio. Right. On stage on a multi-million dollar set with actors and orchestrations and an audience and all of a sudden you realize roller coasters on stage don't work every time <laughs> and bounce houses are loud <laughs> and also take time to inflate and deflate oh my gosh <laughs> so there are technical problems and there are so story horrors story problems like they wrote nearly 60 songs for this musical, Christina. Jeez Louise. Because how do you take that that quirky moment of him, you know, eating the corn at that party? You can't do that in a musical. I mean, I don't know. We say that, but then you get physical onstage comedies like Me and My Girl where that kind of stuff, even though it's small... Right. If you know how to do it, it works. Right. It can still read to the back wall. It's about not being afraid of it. Right. I'm finding the motivation for it. How you, you know, I don't, I think that that stuff still can work. You just have to kind of go for it. Yeah. Well, they, and they threw a lot at the wall. They threw a lot at the wall on this. <laughs> like, including bounce houses. I think I read somewhere there's a there's an entire biography about the making of this musical yeah. by Barbara Eisenberg called Making It Big. Everyone should find it online because you can get it cheap. It is so fascinating. Susan's character had five different opening numbers during the creative process. Like, oh my goodness, five because they just didn't know how to introduce her in a way that Elizabeth Perkins in the movie can just right. do in a look, right? You know, right? Like three lines is, of dialogues in the movie, and you're good. But 
how do what you introduce is that her? moment? What he, is the essence of that character? And then Josh's mom, who is just... Her, some of her stuff is absolutely stunning. Well, heartbreaking in the movie. And then you get Barbara Walsh from Falsettos. You know what I mean? Yeah. You get Trina. And then what do you do with her? Because in the film, she's effective, but she's hardly in it. Right? So let's talk about the investors. We normally don't do this, but it's important to what the story and journey of this show was. So there were a couple of different investors. Um, there was a Broadway investor as well. But then FAO Schwartz shows up. Legit the toy store. The toy in, store. Invests in this Broadway musical. So the producers go to F.A. Schwartz and are like, this is ripe for the picking. And they have this idea because F.A. Schwartz, when Big the Movie came out, had a whole big section because of it being in the film and it being such an iconic part right. of the film. Right. So like they had a whole thing. Everybody was coming in to play on the giant piano because now they knew about it. Whole nine yards. Right. So they're like, OK, wait, if this works for the film, why can't it work for Broadway? Right. If I've got a hit show especially a hit show that caters specifically to their market. Why can't I have a corner of the store that has a bunch of big, the musical merchandise? Well, and like, especially when the show is playing four blocks away, you know what I mean? Exactly. But they did it because they knew the payback from it. If, if big became big and really hit it, then they were going to make their money back and then some. So they knew it was going to be um, a mutually beneficial interaction. Oh, yeah. And they had like over 40 toys in development, some of which actually hit the stores and shelves. And you have to remember in the 1990s, FAO Schwartz tried to franchise out and there were locations around the U.S., including the one in Las Vegas where Bobby bought the cast album to this mm -hmm. because after the show flopped, it wasn't available anywhere else but F.A.O. Schwartz. And um, they, I mean, they had an entire big, the musical section at the one in Vegas. And like, I can't even imagine what the one in New York would have been like. But yeah. they had toy pianos that were branded for the musical. They had the Zoltar Crazy. machine up. And like I said, even more toys in development because had it been huge, I mean, to put it in perspective, this show opened around the same time as Rent, which... Mm -hmm. It ended up that Rent ended up saving the American musical that year and not big, which is an interesting story. Rent had a Fifth Avenue, like at Saks, there was a Rent clothing line. You know what I mean? <laughs> so Broadway show Synergy in the 90s, that year specifically, was huge on Fifth Avenue. So F.A. Schwartz knew they, they had to take that gamble. They were just the branded investor, which well, speaks to what happened in Detroit. <laughs> well, so in Detroit, they get... They've gotten F.A.O. Schwartz, and of course, the piano scene is iconic from the movie, so you're going to put that in the musical. And F.A.O. Schwartz actually crafted specific toys to be props in the show. But that producer smartly then took it to other corporate sponsors because there are scenes in the mall, and he got major names like Reebok and Burger King to literally allow their corporate signage into the show, which rubbed people the worst way possible. Yep. But by the time it got to Broadway, it wasn't Burger King anymore. It was like Burger Shack and <laughs> Shoe Store. But um, yeah, they had a bunch of corporate sponsors come on board. I don't know if we've seen anything like it since. I think that there have been corporate sponsors on a musical before, but they don't necessarily have like their branding on stage. Right. 
like Mac for a while was a corporate sponsor of Wicked because it was their makeup making the Green Lady, you know? That being said, from everything I read in Detroit, they actually, instead of doing chopsticks for the piano scene, they had an entire song that was basically a commercial for FAO Schwartz. For FAO Schwartz. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which really rubbed people the wrong way. I mean, that was plastered all over that Detroit review that I read. <laughs> oh, they hated that scene in They FAO were Schwartz. so upset that it wasn't chopsticks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. An interesting experiment that um, helped get this show literally on the road to Broadway, just gave them money to do it, you know, allowed it to happen. So they've closed in Detroit and now they get to go to New York. But like you said, it was a quick turnaround because they wanted to open before the Tonys. And I actually (laughs) read somewhere that Daniel Jenkins, who played Josh, your lead, apparently had to have knee surgery due to like a torn ligament or something. So was in a cast when they got back into rehearsals for the Broadway show. He had a giant knee brace on and was practically on crutches and not able to move around as much by the time they opened. Yeah, he had like knee surgery a couple weeks before opening night, which is insane. It is insane. It also means that they didn't have very many previews. So they didn't get a lot of time in the theater. They got very minimal tech, which is terrifying for what this set was. Well, and the set broke down all the time. I mean, roller coaster. Like, <laughs> roller coaster. I mean, they were smart enough to, ca- to cut the bounce castle after Detroit. Good. Because in that scene, in the movie, it's iconic moment. They get on the big trampoline in his loft, right? And right. it's when you see Josh and Susan really fall in love for each other. He's realizing he can have different feelings for a girl than he's had before. And she, her walls are coming down, you know, corporate shark. And she's like, oh, I just want to have fun. And so they made it a bounce house. <laughs> In Detroit, because that's where you do. But I think it ended up in being one of, I think, the most beautiful. I think when they were forced to deviate enough from the movie is when they found their most beautiful moments in the show. Because on Broadway, due to technical demands, they turned it into, he just flashed on his planetarium and sang about <laughs> stars. And it's one of the most soaring moments in the entire score. Like That duet is absolutely beautiful. And it's like, I don't need to see them bouncing. Just spin around singing stars, stars, stars. That's all we need. And save your money. <laughs> like, Look, and that's the thing, right? Like, we have to remember... We don't have to have the most expensive set. We don't have to have all the tricks and gadgets or whatever. It can be really simple visuals that pull an audience in. I mean, we saw that with Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Right. Every one of those tricks is old school magic, like Houdini magic. 100%. Yeah. So none of it is big, crazy. I think there's only two pyro moments in the entire two piece. Insane. Yeah, four acts, there's only two pyro moments. The rest of it is all just fun tricks and slides of hand, uh, like trap doors. Like, it's nothing extravagant. Well, just flip on that planetarium switch. So they end up with a finalized show on Broadway, right? And this is the show that I fell in love with. Like I said, mm-hmm. I bought this cast album at FAO Schwartz in the late 90s because you couldn't find it anywhere else. I mean, to say that I was obsessed with this is a... Small statement. Um, <laughs> I I love this what about musical. it? What about it drew you to it? Um, it being a favorite movie of my childhood was mm-hmm. a big thing. But the score, I didn't know what 
Maltby and Shire were at the time. Mm -hmm. But the score to this musical, I think, has the perfect blend in a way that there are few musicals from that, I would say from about 1995 to 2005. Another one is Witches of Eastwick that has a contemporary Broadway score that still pays plenty of tribute to the Golden Age while also paying tribute to contemporary music as well. Like, and it from the opening chords of Big, like, to that, just that you hear the strings and you hear the horn and the twinkles, and then it goes into the funky, like, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum. I don't know. There's just, it feels very Disney to me, even though Disney had nothing to do with it. No, the I would agree with that. It definitely yeah. has that feel. So one of the things I read, especially in the Broadway reviews, were that Maltby and Shire had forgotten what it was like to be a kid. Okay. Right. And that energy of being a kid. Now, when I went and listened to the original cast album, as well as the West End production, which okay. is pretty close, I think there's some small changes here and there, but it's pretty close. Um, the first thing I felt was excitement. Right. First thing I felt was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so good. And then I'm not disappointed by it. Just listening to it. And so when I first was listening through it, I'm like, why did this flop? I am confused. <laughs> because think... if you just listen to the score and the music and the story that's being told through both the instrumentation and the vocals, you're just like, this is everything I ever needed out of a musical. I, I just I love it. To me, it's like it's so Disney without it being Disney. I obviously was a child for the most part listening to the show mm -hmm. in the late I, I the show came out in 1996 i had to have listened to it before my senior year in high school because that's when i discovered carrie and this was before carrie so oh my goodness um i yeah i totally related to it's interesting i related to certain things as a teenager that mm -hmm. i relate to differently now and i think those critics were wrong i think that a lot of the adult stuff 100% feels the way that children perceive adults and uh -huh. almost a little bit of the other way as well. There are moments where some of like Susan and her friends or the guys in the office turn into this almost operatic stuff. And I'm like, cause that's what a kid thinks, right? Like yeah. adults are over the top and operatic. And there's some stuff that we see the kids do that it almost feels a little too childish, but I'm like, uh, but we're seeing it through the grown up eyes, right? Like, right. I don't know. It's it's so good. Oh my gosh, the score does it for me. And I did not see this show on Broadway, so it could have been absolutely um, awful. Like it could have been the worst show ever. I yeah, it could have been. And here's the thing that I found really interesting. Right, is when I went back to read all these reviews because again, I was really confused when I started with just the cast album as to how this flopped. Right. Right. So I had to be like, there must have been something. And the reviews are so split. You okay. either loved it right. or you hated it. Right. And that in and of itself can be confusing for someone, an audience member trying to decide what they're going to see on, on Broadway. Right. Right. You have Rent that's super, super edgy. And you had the uh, you had the revival of King and I. Oh, and then you happening. bring in the noise, bring in the funk. Like that was right, that which season. is not really it's not really a musical. It's no. it's like a presentation, a musical presentation, right? right? So it's all really different. Um, and then you have this very traditional, almost contemporary musical, which at the time was 
weird. Well, and no, and I read that. I didn't even realize that. This was like the first real shot in a big budget way to reclaim the American musical comedy that people had felt Andrew Lloyd Webber had taken from people. Because after Webber took over in the 70s and 80s, all that Broadway's doing is stuff like Crazy for You and revivals of Guys and Dolls. Like that's mm-hmm. what's succeeding on Broadway. Like The King and I. Yeah. And so then here comes this brand new Broadway musical comedy. And it's almost like people forgot what to do with it. I blame it on just people not understanding big. I do. Like I do as well. And you know, it's funny because we have things like now we have School of Rock and Matilda. Which, and I think big is better than both of them. And I'm going to like blasphemy. Oh, I don't. But, okay. I don't know if I can say that about Matilda, but that's because it, it holds a special place in my heart. Okay. Um, okay. Um, but that being said, they're all very different, but what they all have at their core is that childlike play. That yes. sense of throwing out rule books and seeing the world through kids' eyes. I mean, in Big specifically, there are two songs that point out to me of being, I think, absolute masterpieces of this creative team getting into the headspace. And they're both sung. That's not true. One of them sung by adult Josh. The other one is sung by, depending on the production, either young Josh or old Josh or both Joshes. Um, the first one's I Want to Go Home. I mean, to me... Mm. That is such a moving number. And when you see a 30-year-old man sing it, it, it who does it well, it's so touching because it is the voice of a child. That is the, yeah. the fear, the insecurity. Like, if it's performed well, it's so moving. And then on the other hand is I want to know, which we may get into a little bit later about how it can be maybe problematic in a modern world. But at least in 1996, the innocence of a 13-year-old boy wanting to to grow up but also being absolutely terrified of mm. of what's going to happen there and not even understanding but also like it's that moment of when we are no longer children you know what i mean and yeah. they put that into music like i don't know well, Maltby, Shire yeah. and Maltby talked about how they wanted to explore what that was for a 13-year-old boy right that moment of true transitioning And how do you express that through music? And as you said, I think that the way it was done in the original Broadway show was very problematic. Once I like learned what was actually happening in that moment, I realized, oh, well, that's where they deviated from the film where they shouldn't have. Right. Because. Well, so let's let's talk talk, about that. Yeah, let's talk about it. So in the Broadway show during I Want to Know, they choose the creatives made the choice for Josh and Susan to um, consummate their relationship and have sex. And in the film, that is not what happened. It's much more innocent. They fall in love in in an emotional way with one another and they share a kiss. Right. And that happens. But then it makes it easier when we get to the end and Susan discovers that Josh is not actually an adult and that this weird magical thing has happened that she can then reconcile with herself that she was actually in love with the way that she felt with around Josh, him, right? Not in love with Josh. Whereas in the Broadway show, when they make it about that, 
all of a sudden we're talking about something completely different. And if that were the case, I don't think Big the movie would have ever been made. Well, especially because Penny Marshall directed it. So it was directed yeah. by a woman, which yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. So I th- that's that's my two cents on it. Bobby, what do you what do you have to say about it? Yeah, I think it makes it makes big problematic because I've loved this show from an early age. I do think it's one of those ones that just didn't happen at the right time. Mm-hmm. But that choice, you know, I'd read during the creative process, I want to know was one of the first songs they wrote for the show, you know, and they have switched. Is it adult Josh physically singing it? Is it like they did on Broadway, young Josh stepping forward while Josh and Susan are doing things in the background or in, I think in the national tour that followed, which we'll get to in a bit, it's both of them singing as a duet. They've done it three different ways, but the way it was done on Broadway is problematic because, you know, they've written the Broadway production in such a way that that first kiss happens at the end of act one in cross the line. And he has that beautiful, that was a kiss. Golly, she kissed me. So she, he has that ballad moment before the dance number, engulfs him back into reality um and it's beautifully done there but it's Mm -hmm. like you have your kiss at act one so what happens in act two you know story-wise you have to take it farther but i don't i don't think we could do that again because it's it's extremely problematic we i think over time we are learning that young boys can be victims too and there are a lot of inappropriate relationships that happen with adults of both sexes. You know, a lot of times we like to blame adult men being predators towards, you know, teenage and younger girls, but it can happen to little boys as well. And I think exactly. we shouldn't perpetuate stereotypes of like, hey man, you got lucky, all of that. Um, teenage boys are v- just as delicate and fragile. And if we want to break the cycle of a lot of misogyny and abuse, we need to start protecting them better, you know? I agree. And yeah, I I understand that thought process of like, where do you take the story next? But there are so many other choices to be had. Okay, like what? My first thought is, is that there's always something that stops it from happening, right? Like okay. whether it's Billy entering unannounced, whether it's, you know, it could be so many things. I think that also I watched the bows of the Broadway cast, okay. right? So it's all choreographed and it's really fun. Like the kids each get a dance solo. And yes, they do. You, yes, especially that girl who's like, I'm going to catch my foot at my face. Here I go. Split. Um, <laughs> And, you know, and it's all choreographed and everything. And so when Daniel Jenkins offers his handout to Krista Moore, who played Susan, she comes on stage and gives him a kiss on the lips. And I'm like, oh. okay, but now, like, you can't assume that people are disassociating you from the characters already. You can't because you've choreographed it. You've done this whole thing. It's part it's, of the show. It's part of the show. It's orchestrated. Like, at first, I didn't even realize I was watching the bows until the final kid took a bow. Right. And I was like, oh, we're in the bows. Okay. But even then, you can't assume that the average Joe is going to immediately disassociate you from the character. No, that's still Josh and Susan. It's still Josh and Susan. And if this is after Susan has discovered that Josh is not actually an adult, then that is uncomfortable and jarring, right? And I think that the best thing to do is find a way to avoid it or even Josh avoiding it. Maybe during I want to know, it ends with I want to know, but that 
freaks me out too much, right? I, I mean, I think that's the strongest choice. I mean, it sucks because it still leaves Susan in a compromise position because if we're allowing her to go there and if saying she wasn't going to be the one to stop things, I don't know. But yeah. Yeah, but you have to, like, we also have to remember the context in which she's right. saying that she wants to keep going forward. She's, un again, under the, the character is under the assumption that, that he, he is, is a 30-year-old man. man. Right. So, like, there's nothing wrong with her having those feelings. It's not until she learns the reality that things need to be different. Right. From her perspective, from that character's perspective. The important thing for writers to remember is that Josh has to make the decision to say no. Yeah. And that could be part of him saying, that could be part of that decision of, I want to go home. I don't want to be an adult yet. I don't want to have to deal with these complicated emotions and these complicated things. And like people rely on me for their jobs. Oh my right. gosh, what is that? Right. Like that can all be part of the same conversation for him. Well, and you wouldn't have to change much because instead of Coffee Black being like, I just got laid, we're going to do this big dance number, Josh has used the getting laid there's the inspiration to come up with this toy. Maybe he gets interrupted. Maybe his uncomfortability is what inspires him to invent whatever the toy is. Because if you're going to revive the show and make it contemporary, what it was in the 1988 movie, which was some weird interactive book, that's not what they did. It was some CD-ROM thing in 1996. And right. like... 2021 it would have to be something else for kids to not roll their eyes right well should we step back a bit and talk about right what happened after the show so it didn't do well yes. on broadway it the critics were split down split the and a lot of negative and the show did not get the tony love that they had nope. hoped for like no and bobby can you please speak to how the reaction for the creative team went so that lack of Tony of, love, it kind of like hits close to home. And because I've worked on a Broadway flop and this might end up in our Christmas episode because it was on the cutting room floor. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're working on a Broadway flop that's of a, of a high profile, Tony voters talk to the team and sometimes they lie to you. <laughs> um, and so we were we were convinced Cheeto was winning for the visit. We were convinced the visit might win Best Musical. And who knows who was saying what. But a lot of people told the creative team to this, oh, we don't like rent. We don't like bringing the noise, bringing the funk. We're voting for big. B that's not what happened. And nope. so David Shire was very upset and started writing letters to Tony Borders <laughs> and saying, you told me you didn't like those shows. Did you vote for big? And like started an internal campaign to like say there was a conspiracy <laughs> against his musical because so many people had in confidence said otherwise. But, um, Oh man. Yeah. He was the right. Politics behind the scenes. And it sucks because Maltby and Shire, just pause for a second. They've had these successful off-Broadway reviews, haven't really had the success on Broadway as a team, no. but have had, like, Richard Maltby, you know, ends up writing the American lyrics to Miss Saigon. So he's yeah. had success. David Shire, you know, has been a film composer, but also has, like, written dance arrangements for shows like, oh, you know, Company. Like, yeah. no big deal. <laughs> like, these guys have had successes in the arena, but not in the way that they had hoped to. It yeah. had to have been soul-crushing, because you don't get many opportunities after this. Well, you know? and as you've mentioned, the their works as, like, a catalog are so loved. 
by our right. industry. Which is so why, loved. which is why after the show flops in New York, doesn't get the Tony love closes up shop. They're still offered a national tour, which is rare, especially for mm-hmm. the nineties for a Broadway flop. Well, um, especially when they can't hang their hat on like Tony winner. <laughs> Great reviews. No. Um, (laughs) I mean, a couple of them were good reviews. Okay, fine. But they get this national tour, but it's completely reconstructed and revived. It's actually one of the things that gave the new director, Eric Schaefer, um, Mm. the industry kind of title of being a show doctor because he fixed big for the road. He, um, they didn't really write new material so much as they had gone through their drawers of like seven years. Yeah. yeah, and they put in a bunch of older versions of songs. They put in songs that had been cut, scenes that had been cut, things like that, and totally streamlined it for the road. And they almost brought it back to Broadway. Like that was one of those almost like got a second Broadway bow like two years later. Oh, but wow. That would have been interesting. Yeah, it didn't end up happening, though. And then, yeah, then you continue because that's really the next high profile production we see, right? So, yeah, they did the 2017 tour, which I believe is similar, if not the same script from the, yeah, from the U.S. tour. And then in 2019, it went to the West End and it starred Jay McGinnis as Josh, who um, I saw in Strictly Come Dancing. And uh, he's from the boy band The Wanted. Oh, my. The Wanted fans listening. (laughs) His co-star for Susan was Kimberly Walsh, who was also on Strictly but a different season. Oh, okay. And she's from Girls Loud, which is a girl group out of the UK. So, oh, it's like celebrity casting. I know. So I went and read the reviews for that because I was interested to see, especially with the doctored script, like if it was different, if the reviews were different. And right. they were split down the middle again. That's insane. It is insane. And I do wonder if it is this, you had mentioned it earlier, where it's a sense of like, depending on which angle you're looking at it, you're either going to find the love and joy in it or you're going to find the immaturity in it, right? Right. Depending on if you're looking at it through rose-tinted glasses of a child or looking through it from you know, bifocals of an adult. Like Grandpa looking at Big the Musical. That was Um, a good analogy. I'm proud of that one. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I'm looking at the song list for the UK revival. Um, It's like a hybrid. So, like, it's most of what they fixed for the US tour, but then a couple things have been, like, one of the big, like, I can't believe they did that for the US tour was they took out I Want to Go Home cut from the oh. show like which is why no they need to have that in now. musical theater schools you had to get music from the vocal selections because it wasn't in the score um that's been fixed though uh so there are a couple couple broadway moments that have made their way back into big over the years which mm-hmm. i think is the right decision because i like the broadway score um but i like this song list for the uk production i've listened to bits and pieces of it um, yeah it's good yeah it's actually what i found really fun about it was it still has everything that was magical about the original Broadway cast recording, but it's slightly contemporized. Right. So, like, the vocal placement's a little more contemporary. Um, the Because it's different actors, of course, you sure. get a different point of view on some of the lyrics and stuff. So things pop out that didn't pop out in the original right. Broadway cast. And I think also some of that is, like, is now 2019 instead of right. 1996. Um you know, and so it was really fun comparing and contrasting them because 
the essence was still there. Right. It wasn't this drastic change. Like um, when we talked about Amelie a couple of weeks ago, like there was a drastic change between right. US and UK. This was pretty similar. It still had that magic. It still had the heart. And it just... Again, it just makes me laugh that the critics were split again. I guess it's one of the reasons why it's never made its way back to Broadway is that people can't decide if they love it or hate it. Yeah, it's it's weird because I do think it's such a well-crafted musical. Me I mean, too. <laughs> other than some glaring thematic issues that m may have been felt differently in 1988 yeah. as well as 1996, that we just we would have to address moving forward like yes because the young audience that you would want for this musical is incredibly and i love them for this they're incredibly woke and i don't mean that in a negative way whatsoever is yeah. they are quick to call out like this isn't right and i love that i wasn't doing that at 16 i was no. just i was just trying to graduate high school and like <laughs> figure things out um but they call out things when they see it. And I and I love that about them. But I do think that there would be some problems found that if we took those out of the piece, I think people, young people would embrace this. Um, I do, too. It It is. It, I, again, I, I do put it up there with the School of Rocks and the Matildas of the musical theater world. I do think I think it's hard for people to get in the head of a 30 year old singing. I want to go home. I think it is for adults. I which is funny because School of Rock and Matilda were both hits and School of Rock specifically to go to the 30 year old man saying, I want to go home. Like that's Dewey. A little bit. Yeah. You know, and that show was embraced with open arms and a warm hug. You know what I mean? And I'm shocked that this show big is not done regionally. The I'm confused. It's an easy sell because you are, you have a cast. You it's built for a cast of kids. 100% which you need regional houses love to do because it sells tickets 100% done right when you like have there's three, half your house sold three prime roles and like you were saying they've contemporized some of the singing what I love so much about Krista Moore as Susan in the original is mm -hmm. she's not embarrassed to be a mixy soprano no. like and it works so well so if you're if your leading lady is a mezzo you know with beautiful high notes great do it that way if she's a belter, if she's Sutton Foster, cool. Do it that way, too. Doesn't yeah. matter. Like, Does not matter. It can go either way. 100%. It's so that, again, it's so well written if you're looking at it from a score and vocal point of view. And the script got doctored. The script got fixed. So what's right. licensable is actually the U.S. tour version. Um, and I'm just confused because you don't have to have a set that's a zillion dollars you know like this doesn't need that they did it for broadway because it's broadway right. but you don't need that i mean we proved that with stars planetarium go 100 that's an easy that technical design 20 dollars on amazon i know i've got one for my daughter oh like, my it's like <laughs> yeah absolutely no i'm shocked the big regional houses don't do this and it sucks because had it come 15 years later like some of these other movie to musical flops that we've seen like the big fishes and uh, musicals of that ilk that do get done at the regional houses. I just think Legally big was ahead of its time in so many different ways. It you know? really was. It was also interesting. So I went and I looked at what was going on in 1996 when big opened, right? right. What was the, what was the pop culture like at the time? Cause just looking at Broadway, as we mentioned earlier, you've got rent, <laughs> 
which is pushing like it's no longer musical theater as we know it. No. Um, you've got King and I, which is iconic classic musical theater. Right. And then you've got Big, you know, so like you've got these three v- very different shows happening and both King and I and Rent were hit. So what else was going on? Um, and I realized that the N64 got released that year. Yes, it did. 1996. And uh, yeah, epic. Christina was on the N64 all the time. It okay. was also the first flip phone came out okay. that year. This is the height of the Clinton administration. Right. Yeah. So it's also me, which means that the middle class was like living the high life. Thriving. And the middle class was huge. Right. You know, there was much less divide financially between the masses. And this is after the Gulf War. Like everything was pretty great. So people spending money on something not expected like rent makes sense because they're like, well, it's okay. Like it's not a big deal if I if I spend sixty dollars on this ticket. I mean, you know? I'm I'm going to I'm going to throw a conjecture out there. Sure. So it's 1996. You've got the Greatest Generation, which are me and your grandparents, who are yeah. all about that King and I. Like that's that's what they mm-hmm. want to see, especially with Donna Murphy. I mean, in retrospect, I want to see Donna Murphy as well. Um, I know, right? <laughs> but uh, then you've got the Gen Xers. Uh, or Gen, yeah, Gen Xers who are now young adults and mm-hmm. they could buy tickets to shows, but they're buying tickets to rent because that is the musical yep. literally of their generation. And then you've got the baby boomers, which are our parents who I think we were the target audience or something like big, but I yeah. don't think our parents saw it that way. And I think that they didn't like as much as we think, oh, well, they would have taken kids to a Broadway show. I don't think it was as I don't I still don't think it's that big. I don't think you see entire theaters full of children on Broadway. You I know? mean, when I saw Charlie and the Chocolate Factory on Broadway, that entire audience was filled with kids. Okay. I had All right. four or five behind me. Okay. And it was so much fun listening to them react to the okay. show. Um, ironically, didn't do very well either. I think that also 1996, New York was not the safest place in the world. No. Um. So it wasn't a place that you went on a family vacation. No. You know, and so much of Broadway relies on that kind of customer. Right. You know, Um. so I think that that's also part of it. Timing in terms of where and location. And if they the U.S. Sh- tour did really great. And right. yes, they fixed a lot of the problems, but it did really great because it went to the epicenter of families. <laughs> Where baby boomers with millennial children were able to buy yeah. tickets to it. Because if they had just waited two years, Lion King, 1997, you know what I mean? Right. Disney cleans up Broadway. This, in those early Disney years, I feel like could have, I don't know. I don't know. I agree. I agree. I think that, unfortunately, it's timing and also they got to get rid of that one scene. I bet you anything that that one scene was a thing, whether you could articulate it or not, that for an audience member, there was something in their gut that was like, this is not okay. (laughs) I hope so, because I mean, but I'm going to tell you, it wasn't until very recently that I felt different about it because I just never thought about it too hard. And I've sung that song. Okay. Hashtag Mm -hmm. when I did a show called Norman's Ark with Noah Galvin, (laughs) who is 
now a replacement. Um, you know, Evan Hansen and is dating Ben Platt. Um, all of the things. Been the star of a major TV show. When he was actually 13, we did the show Norman's Ark at the Ford Amphitheater. And he really wanted to sing a duet with me. And again, I'm obsessed with Big. We sang, and I hope this recording doesn't exist anywhere. We oh, sang I, I Want No, because we sang I Want to Know, the duet version. And I think back on that and I'm like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> like I'm I'm uncomfortable. Um it's not uncomfortable about us singing it together. It's just what the song is about in the context of the show, you know? As a kid, I I remember watching Big and not thinking twice. Right. And actually feeling sad that they didn't end up together. Oh, it's right? heartbreaking. Like it's that sad. scene and you know Tom Hanks turns into the guy who plays Davy and Newsies cuz that's the same actor. Um <laughs> like when you see him turn around and he's got the baggy clothes on and he just yeah. kind of like looks back and Elizabeth Perkins has the tears in her eyes. Like yeah. even as a kid that broke my heart. I was like, wait, he doesn't have to get small again. He can stay big. Like, <laughs> and then you're like, Susan, you could get small too. Like, come That's on. what I wanted to happen. I Go wanted talk Susan to, to be a 13 year old. But that's maybe that's wanted. how you fix the musical. Maybe that's how you fix the musical. Friends, we figured it out. We fixed the world. Done. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We um, figured it out. We figured it out. And I would like to give myself a gold star for not talking for three hours. Because <laughs> I could have. Um, because I'm obsessed with Like, I want to turn this show into a movie so bad. Um, but oh, that's, that would actually probably be a really great choice. But that's a conversation for another day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another floptastic episode of my favorite flop um christina where can they find us on the interwebs well they can find us on instagram twitter facebook and the ticketed talks and we are also anywhere you listen to podcasts but you would know that because you're listening to the podcast i mean i would hope so but if you aren't go over to apple podcast and listen there because you can click the little subscribe button which is free uh, and write a five-star review, which helps more awesome floptastic people just like you find us um, and keeps this show happening. And speaking of keeping this show happening, Christina, how can they help keep this show happening? Well, one way that you can help keep the show happening is going to our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com and checking out that merch store. Because uh, there's some pretty great stuff in there. We've had a lot of fun creating it and uh, potentially maybe adding some things. Who knows? Dun, dun, you never dun. know until you go check it out. Uh, so go check it out. See if you find anything fun. Buy a mug. Buy a t-shirt. We have mouths to feed. <laughs> you can cover your mouth with the My Favorite Flop mask. <laughs> you can because guess what? Masks are back. Ta ta ta. All right, Bobby, I think it's time to give him the clue for the next episode. All right. The first clue for episode 17 is this. The title characters of these two shows both appear as named characters in the other one show. I don't even know. I, I mean, got I no do. clues. I, I well, you're going to have to tune into our clues on all of our social media to find out what it is. Um, Christina. Do you have any parting words for today's listeners? 
What do you get when you mix alcohol and literature? What? Tequila Mockingbird. My gosh. Okay. Bye. Bye.